At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now stay tuned for Gene Shepard here on WOR New York, 710 on your dial. kind of summer madness every year, you know. I, I I always look forward to this time of the year because things begin to pop everywhere, you know. Madness is rampant. For example, uh, I see by the New York Times here a couple of days ago that uh, Ilsa Koch, Coach Koch, K-O-C-H, Ilsa Koch, you know the one, the famous one? The dragon of Buchenwald? You ever hear of her? I see that uh, her relatives now are attempting to rehabilitate her good name. That she was a victim of bad mouthing, you know. And uh, <laughs> I think that's a new concept of history. Oh, it's got to, it's got to, it's got to spread. So it's got to spread. I can, I can just see uh, Beowulf Girth Wamba of East Bavaria. 
who was suing before the world court to uh, rehabilitate the name. It was great, 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 great grandfather Attila the Hun. And I, I can see him testify. He was the victim of war hysteria, bias and prejudice, and just because he wore his hair long and loved to eat the meat raw, and he carried around the club, they made bad stuff about him. Attila the Hun. We wish to have that straightened out in history. It's got to happen. Oh, yeah, the great, 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 great nephews of Benedict Arnold are going to, you know, start to... Because after all, he was he was almost the original... Uh, <laughs> he'd have fed it right in today, wouldn't he? Yes, sir. He's a little ahead of his time. So, uh, would you please give me my summer madness music, please? Give me... Summer is approaching like a great, vast cloud of total passion. Here it comes. Are you going to be ready, Frank? Yeah. <laughs> All together now. Sing it out. I like it. Once a week, I like to hear this. Doesn't do much for me, but it kind of straightens my head out. Right? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Keep it there, though. Uh, we may need that. Things like to sag here a little bit in the middle. But the, uh, yeah, you know. Let's see, do we have a, a thing here to do? Oh, yeah, yeah. Before we go any further, uh, uh, I got to make a, a note here. We're going to do a live show, and it's the last one we're doing in the metropolitan area for this school year. And uh, a lot of parents can breathe a sigh of relief then. It's the last one. Why? Why? Have you ever been to one of my shows, Marty? Why, well, one time here not more than three months ago, the fire department was called. They wound up squirting the audience with the hoses, you know, and a whole bit. So uh, if you're in the neighborhood, uh, be sure to mark us down. Saturday, May 1-5, Saturday, May 15th, I'm going to be out at Clifton High School. It's a great big high school across over in Jersey there, Clifton, New Jersey. Tickets uh, are 2 bucks, and the location is 333 Colfax Avenue in Clifton, New Jersey. And uh, we're sponsored by a very elegant group over there. The Clifton Youth Council of Creative Images. Can you imagine that crowd having its meetings? They sit around and create some images. I wonder if they show stag films or something there. I just, I'm just asking a question. I don't know. Creative images can be almost anything. And now, if you'd like further information, call area 201. Now, don't call here. I mean, everybody gets all balled up with phone numbers. It's area code 201, and the number there is 478-7080. And call during the day. I mean, it's a school you're calling, and they're there from 10 a.m. till 3 p.m., strictly banker's hours over there in Clifton. So uh, you give them a call. Don't call the station. We will tell you to go belt up, you know. The area is 201-478-7080. And it's my last live appearance. Oh, I'm going to make a few, uh, you know, taped, transcribed appearances here and there. You know, they put a tape recorder up on a stage and play this tape. You know, that's kind of good. Uh, incidentally, uh, speaking of the madness, it's happening. You, you can see the madness more in any given society through its rituals. You ever thought about that? That there's a whole school of social anthropologists who study rituals because... The, uh, you learn a lot about the society by the kind of rituals they have. You know, what they do in a ritual. And what is a ritual? Well, the 4th of July is a ritual. If you want to look at it that way, it is, you know. Everybody going around throwing cherry bombs and other guys' fords, that's a ritual. 
And, uh, you know, celebrating uh, independence and all that stuff. Well, uh, one of the most uh, significant of all rituals is the marriage ritual. This, uh, this is studied by people, uh, all anthropologists, particularly, the, not so much the, uh, it's mostly the social anthropologists who study this, and uh, not the physical anthropologists, but uh, they, uh, they, they, they examine the weather, you know, the, the, people, the way people get married. This is very important. And uh, we have the latest marriage that just come out. I imagine you've seen it in the paper there. Uh, one of my spies sent this to me. It's clipped out of the Columbus, Ohio Dispatch. And it's a wire story from San Francisco. And it has a touching photograph there that looks a little bit like something that you see down here on McDougal Street on any given Saturday night. But it's a San Francisco. Raggedy Jane the Clown says she will never forget her wedding to Raggedy Robin the Clown. A two-and-a-half-hour event called a magical wedding circus ballet. Belly dancers, bagpipe bands, female impersonators, that's a nice touch, a trapeze artist, and a fire eater frolic through Glide Memorial Methodist Church packed with over 500 costume guests who cheered them on last Saturday in air heavy with sensuous incense. I, Raggedy Robin, pledge my eternal love to you, Raggedy Jane. The groom recited in the 15-minute ritual that included the Lord's Prayer and exchange of rings. I had a wonderful time, said Robin, 23, who planned the event. I always knew my wedding would be something unusual. He planned it himself. He married 19-year-old uh, Jane Melody of Urbana, Illinois. Now, the couple wore clown costumes and makeup. Jane had finished sewing her gown of patchwork lace and ribbon the day before. Robin and Jane are not employed. Uh, so they're not really working clowns. They just feel like clowns. Probably in a lot of ways they are. Mrs. Smith said she hadn't seen Robin for two years. And uh, when he ran into her the other day, he suggested this caper. And she said, I didn't think he'd go through with it. I'm stunned. And so they got married. Renee, here's a little touches adding to it. Renee, a trapeze artist, performed on a velvet swing over the center aisle. George James, a singing dog. Well, he's saying, I love you truly. What else do you think he'd sing at a wedding? George James, a singing dog, followed fire eater John Haddon and a troupe of 15 belly dancers, including a large, tall lady with heavy thighs who danced with a three-foot snake. A uh, dozen female impersonators shrieked and danced wild. This is probably the clue to the whole thing. A dozen female impersonators shrieked and danced wildly in a corner while the Los Troncos Woods Community Marching Band boomed, yes, we have no bananas. The bride and groom finally advanced down the confetti and flower-strewn aisle in a procession, including a live llama, a Hindu band, three costumed bears, dressed as firemen, and a costumed black gorilla who was wearing a Norman Vincent Peale suit and carrying a white parasol. Well, I'm just telling you what's on the paper. I don't invent the news, friends. Don't get mad at me. The Right Reverend Michael Francis Hitkin, Bishop of the Evangelical Catholic Community of the Love of Christ of San Francisco, and the What's Happening Now Baby Church, and Friend of Robin, performed the marriage. Well, that's... Uh, I'm just quoting what happened. It was a great... Uh, now, now, the question arises, of course, is it almost inevitably will. How, you know, ten years from now or maybe 15, they're going to explain that to their kids and uh, try to explain to them that it just seemed right at the time, you know. 
No, no, it's a. Uh, have you ever have you ever attended something like that? Well, you know, people always hear about these uh, these weddings where you know some kind of a wild kooky wedding of that type, and uh, they they don't often last long. I, I mean, uh, this is a fact because the wedding in it, in this case is really often an end in itself. You know, you wake up the next morning, Robin and Raggedy Jane wake up the next morning, you know, and there's a guy knocking on the door asking for rent. Well, then the whole thing becomes, you know, gets so icky, and uh, it ain't camp anymore. But uh, these things don't often last, but uh, I, I actually attended, in my time, I've attended three grotesqueries of this type. Well, they are. That's a, it's a certain thing. You know, I, I have a theory that people who get married in that way are are uh, are really afraid of marriage, and it makes it into some kind of a big game. It's a it's some kind of a fun thing, and it does yeah it doesn't seem real. I mean you know when people are riding llamas around and the female impersonators are shrieking in the corner there, and uh, it just seems like a big party you know, and uh, I'm just curious uh, uh, how many of you have ever known anybody who actually did a thing like that. Well, I, I did. I was a little kid the first time I actually saw it happen. Yeah, you know, I was a kid, too, once. We all were. And uh, I, was, I was little. And we had, we had in, the, in the corner of our... There was a street, see? And uh, back in those days, they had things called vacant lots. Well, they don't have vacant lots. I haven't seen a vacant lot in years. Well, now they call them used car lots. That's something else. No, no, these were vacant lots. There was nothing on them. Uh, I've, I've, you know, either that or they call them McKinney Parking. Now, today, what used to be a vacant lot is, you know, is always... So, uh, this was a plain, ordinary vacant lot, say, and it was down at the end of the street, and there were a lot of rumors about this vacant lot. Among other things, there was a rumor about it that there was an underground fire there. Actually, there was an underground fire. Have you ever seen an underground fire? Well, you know, there are some places in the in the country, and uh, this vacant lot... Maybe this is why I have a curious sense of... Uh, of uh, of terrain that I notice is not shared by most of my eastern contemporaries. By terrain, I mean the sense of the land. Because the land can get up and bite you by the foot in certain places. And it doesn't do it much around here. Except once in a while, you know, a street opens up up in the Bronx, swallows a guy's Mustang or something like that. But they, 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 they always just get mad at Lindsay then. They don't blame the nature, see. Which is really what, it, you know, that's, that's where it is. But uh, nevertheless, we had this street. And down at the end of the street was a vacant lot. And it was a big vacant lot. I, I would say uh, probably a block, almost a block square. Big. It had a lot of... Oh, yeah, it was a big, big... This was not a city block. It was a... Uh, it was, I'd say a good block square. Vacant lot. A lot of weeds and old tires and stuff in it and tin cans. And somewhere along the line, somehow, the there was peat moss. And and uh, this, this is in northern Indiana. Now, you don't see much peat moss around here. But peat moss is, is stuff that... Uh, exists in places that used to be swampy. And, uh, yeah, you know, and all the all the uh, stuff that grew in the swamp, cattails and everything else over the ages and over the eons, form a thick brown layer just under the surface of the sand. Have you ever, have you ever seen moss, uh, peat? Well, this is peat. It's not peat moss. It's peat. Well, when this stuff gets on fire, and if it ever does, it's murder. I mean, it's murder to put out. It just keeps burning. It'll burn for years, like 15, 20, 100 years. It just burns. It just keeps burning on and on. Now, it doesn't start because somebody went over and threw a cigarette in it, uh, because it takes a little more than that. Usually where, how it started was possibly lightning or something like that, something really 
got down deep. And and uh, the vacant lot down at the end of the street was uh, had a lot of rumors and myths about it, you know, all this mysterious stuff. And uh, because of the smoke, you'd see the smoke rising out of the... Yeah, smoke, oh, of course. And it was had a peculiar smell. Anybody who smelled the burning smell of peat recognizes this smell instantly, no matter how long it's been since he has smelled it. It's a distinctive smell. It's kind of a sharp, uh, curiously acrid... Uh, there's a little sweet quality to it, too. It's an odd... No, it doesn't smell like scotch. No, it does not. It's not... Although, uh, this is what they do smoke scotch with, I understand. But uh, uh, this is... Uh, the, the actual burning peat doesn't have quite that smell, but it's a distinctive smell. And the smoke that peat makes when it burns is a kind of a silvery bluish. It's, a, it's an odd color, and it just sort of... Hangs. It doesn't come out in, in real smoke. In other words, a, you can't look out there and say, oh, look at the smoke coming out of the ground. It's a haze. An underground fire is a hazy thing. And it stretches and spreads out all over, uh, maybe for, you know, for hundreds of feet around. And there's no way to tell actually where it is. It just sort of hangs as a haze. And, and for good parts of the year, like all, say, through, through the winter, You'd forget about this because it, it didn't do that, or at least uh, you didn't see it uh, for all through the winter months. But then when it got to be about this time of the year, like it's, uh, you know, June or May, something like that, you'd see that haze begin to form down there, the vacant lot. And that haze would make everything on the other side of the haze, when you're looking through this haze, everything would have a curious shimmering quality to it. And so you'd see, not like so much like heat, but it was a combination of that, that, that veil of smoke and the heat and the air striking it and convection currents and all. And you'd get this strange, odd thing. And you, you, you swear, at, especially at twilight time, uh, at night, just when the sun is about to go down, because the sun is then slanting through, the, the sunbeams are coming through at a crazy angle, you'd swear that you actually were seeing some kind of figures in this thing. Like, uh, it would look like uh, forms, shifting forms in that, that strange haze. And this has been my theory, and I, for what it's worth, this has been one of my theories why places like Scotland and Ireland, where they have great peat bogs, all have a mythology based on fairies and gnomes and elves. Uh, you, you don't you don't hear of anybody say living in uh, let's take a, let's take a specific country like France. You, you don't hear people talk much about fairies and elves and stuff in France. Uh, you don't hear people talk about it much in uh, a place like uh, maybe Spain, but uh, yeah, certainly not America. But places where they have this peat and it it uh, gets a, an underground fire going. Almost all peat bogs have this. You see this strange shifting thing uh, down at the end of the street. Well, one day, I'm a kid, you know, I'm about, oh, a little kid. I must have been about uh, six or seven, and, th and this is the time of your life when you make indelible impressions. Absolutely, you just don't forget these impressions. There's just no way, even though a lot of you like to think you have. I'm sure a lot of you say, oh, I mean, I don't remember nothing. Well, uh, you just haven't, your, your memory just hasn't been triggered. Uh, it's there. And it's probably there in as pristine a form as it possibly is, like uh, you've stored Kodachrome slides of your life in your head. Well, one day, 
the smoke is rising. And uh, there were a lot of rumors about this underground fire. I don't know why I'm telling you about an underground fire, but I might as well. There were a lot of rumors about it. Since many of you don't know anything about it, you may be curious what it's like. The, one of the rumors was that if you ever got out there somehow, you know, chasing a fly ball or, or uh, going, after a, going after a golf ball or something and run across this thing, that the, that the ground would collapse and you would fall into this fire. And there were rumors of kids that had been lost in the past. Now, I'm not sure that that's not true. Think about it for a minute, because this is an underground fire, and it's, uh, it's hot. Boy, it's uh, hotter than a blade. It's really, it's really hot. Because when you take a fire and you cover it up with earth, that fire builds up a tremendous heat. And, uh, and it, it spread for hundreds and hundreds of feet all around there. And this is one of the reasons why this was a vacant lot, apparently. They, they didn't know what to do about it. So you'd smell this, this strange smell, and we'd be playing maybe a block or two down the street, playing ball or something. And you'd see that haze drifting down from the end of the street when the wind was in the right direction, and you'd smell it. And it had a, this, this smell. And then, then another thing that would happen, for, for some reason which I cannot explain, bats were curiously attracted to it. Bats, yes. Uh, have you ever seen bats flying around? Well, for some reason, bats love to fly, or at least they were always doing it. I am not a battlephile, so I don't know. Well, there are people who are, you know, the people who collect these. In fact, I one time ran into a guy who, who had bats as a, uh, as a pet, hobby. He used to walk around with his bat hanging on his arm, and people would scream and fall and, you know, faint and all that stuff. That's worse than having a snake, you know, hooded cobra is your friend. But uh, nevertheless, uh, these bats would come at twilight. You'd see these bats just flitting, drifting in and out of that smoke. that move, you'd hear it. And you'd hear the sound of their wings. Bats have a curious sound like that. You've heard them. They... Well, whenever we would see these bats, uh, this this also maybe this is also part of the mythology of fairies and gnomies and all that sort of thing and elves. Uh, the bats would start coming out in this time of the year. They'd start moving around out in that gray smoke, and we would catch them. You know how you catch a bat? All right, now you're talking to a guy who. Uh, has had some experience in bat. No, no, no bat. You do not catch a bat in a net. If you think you can catch a bat in a net, man, you're you're uh, you're a spectacular net wielder. Uh, because a bat, you know, you know how a bat flies. I, I imagine most of you know. He's got radar going. He he's the first animal, or at least he's one of the animals that uses radar. Among them are porpoises use radar. There's a lot of animals. Yeah, well, that's a sonar is what. But not the uh, no bat is closer to radar because the the sonar that. Yes, he hears it, but it is that it, it is to our th hearing. It is a supersonic note. It, it's it's a very high frequency note, and you cannot hear the bat. And uh, do you know that one of the famous scientists years and years ago that uh, uh, was making experiments trying to figure out how to, you know how a bat was able to fly? You know, there was a rumor out that that uh, bats had had uh, unbelievable eyesight, and and uh, they couldn't figure out how they did it. And you know how they how they discovered it. They put a bat, series of bats, in a, in a sealed room, and they blindfolded them. They, they actually put something over their eyes so they could not conceivably see. So uh, how do you blindfold a bat? Well, that's why he was a scientist, and that's why you're a klutz. So uh, nevertheless, the, the, the bat would fly around, and he still could fly great. I mean, he, he would miss all the, uh, 
all the uh, obstacles they put, he'd fly at a he'd fly at a hat tree or something, and he'd go around and he's blindfolded. He, they couldn't figure out what it, what was going on. So then they they uh, they took the same bats then, and uh, they uh, they put uh, yeah they they put little things over their ears so they couldn't hear. And that bat, then they were done. I mean, the bats would fly into the wall. Even when they could see, they'd, they'd fly into the wall and they'd fall down. And, and uh, they had a terrible time. So they assumed then that it had something to do with his ears. But the, the idea was that possibly what he did, the bat, uh, he would hear reflections off of the wall from his wings. This is what they thought. And so this continued for a long time. People believed this. You know, in other words, he was, he was picking up the sound of his own wing flapping uh, being reflected back from objects. Well, then one day they said, hey, wait a minute, maybe we're wrong here. So they took this, you know, another group of bats, and they, they, they put a little thing around his mouth so he couldn't squeak. You know, so in other words, no sound. And, and by the way, they had heard no sound at all prior to this point. So, of course, again, instantly the bat is in trouble. And he's, uh, even though his ears are out there working, he's hitting up against the walls and stuff. So they eventually realized that it had something to do with a, uh, a sound he was making. And then they, they devised instruments, uh, this came later, where they could pick this stuff up on, uh, on, on a very special type of recording and run it through uh, oscilloscopes, and they could see the pattern of the wave. And he was actually sending tiny, tiny supersonic radar beeps, little radar bleeps, you know, beep, 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 he's sending these things out at a special and specific frequency so that, uh, that when, the, when the frequency changes of the reflection coming back, it was a very solid frequency, and to this day they do not know, by the way, whether the bats are crystal controlled or not. Uh, they, they, they're trying to figure out how it is that they have this great frequency control, see? But uh, the bat... The bat would hear this thing. He'd hear this thing. And I don't know how I got out on all this tonight. Is this, is this interesting to you, Jerry? <laughs> uh, this is WOR New York. But we used to go out, see, and we'd throw... The way you catch a bat, uh, at least the way we caught a bat. See, a bat, a bat is a, is a flight feeder. In other words, generally, in the, in the, unless he's trapped, I mean, if he's in a cage, then there's something else. But a bat will feed, generally, while in flight. He does not feed hanging on a branch or, or a suspended uh, upside down in the eaves or something like that. He, he's a flight feeder, which means that as he's flying, he's, he's eating. And uh, there's nothing better for, uh, the, to get rid of the mosquitoes in your neighborhood than about 25 good-working bats. I'll tell you, they eat millions of mosquitoes in a 24-hour period. And I mean, seriously, millions. They just will decimate the mosquitoes. So uh, the bat, though, will fly around, he flies at that fluttering he's doing all the time, flying, moving around like that. He's sending out these little beeps all the time, boop, 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 boop. And this is how he, he hears when he gets a radar signal from a June bug. You know, it's like night fighters, actually. He gets a radar blip from a night fighter. You know, you know night fighters, you've heard about night fighters, airplanes that go up and shoot down uh, other airplanes at night. Well, they work almost the way bats do, that, uh, that a night fighter gets up there. He can't see the other airplane. But he sends out this radar signal, which draws him directly to it, and he, he may never even see the plane. And then at a certain point, he, he releases his rockets, which are drawn to the airplane by heat that the aircraft produces, the other airplane. Yeah, that's heat proximity. Just zap. 
Well, of course, once in a while, it misses, and then what happens is the rocket comes back and often zaps the plane that did the shooting, which is, you know, kind of bad news. But uh, they work pretty much the way a, a, a bat does. So a bat will be flying around, and he'll, he'll, uh, he'll be sending out his little messages. It'll beep, 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 and suddenly he gets a blip back from a June bug that's flapping along. And that's, forget it, that June bug is done. You know, whap, he just hits him on the fly, and he's just gone. And the bat just will, will fly like that all over the place, absorbing various little bugs. And so, yeah, he just draws them in. Yeah, he just pulls them in. Well, so there, therein lies the weakness of the bat, right? See, he doesn't really see the bugs. He just hears this, this uh, changing note, and he knows there's a bug there. So that means you can get him. So how, how we did it, you take your ball cap, a baseball cap. You ready for this? Take your baseball cap, and you put a rock in it. So, you know, give it a little weight. And so when you see about four or five bats flying around, they fly past you. They fly up and up. Well, you take your cap, and you see this crowd of bats flying around above you, and you just throw your cap as high as you can throw it. Up it goes, right through the crowd of bats. Well, the bat, he gets a blip instantly. See, he hears his blip, and he will fly right into your cap. He'll just go zap. Well, of course, the cap is falling. By that time, the cap comes falling down, and he's caught in the cap. He just flies right in, and blop, you got him. See? <laughs> That's right. If you don't think it works, friend, you just try it. And uh, we used to, yeah, we used to catch maybe on a, on a night like, uh, you know, a good uh, warm spring night, we'd catch maybe 15 or 20 bats. What do we do with them? Well, we generally put them in jars. What do kids do with things they catch? They put them in jars, and, and uh, you, of course, what happens is your mother flips when you bring home a bat in a, in a fruit jar. And they're bad-looking things, although, I, you know, since we caught them, they look good to us. So you'd catch a bat, and uh, we'd bring... Uh, listen, that's not, a, that's not unusual. I, I knew a guy... I'll tell you, I knew a guy... Now, this sounds like some kind of a cockamamie story I'm about to tell you, but I'm telling you the truth. Uh, there was a guy who lived uh, in our neighborhood who had a fish tank in the backyard. It was actually just like a little concrete pond he made back there, you know, little flagstones around it. Then he had a couple of plastic lily pads and stuff in it. Yeah, well, this thing was about uh, maybe two and a half feet deep, roughly. And I'd say it was about, uh, oh, possibly ten feet around. And it, it was like a rock garden. They had a lot of rock gardens. Rock gardens were very big there, and they had a lot of rocks. And uh, he had geraniums and stuff growing in it. He had a fake fountain, which was blowing stuff into the water. You've seen this kind of, this kind of a slob art thing, see? Well, he did one thing, though, that... that that took it out of the completely out of the ordinary realm. Now, a lot of you are going to write in and call up and say that's impossible, but I saw it happen, and this guy did it. That he was a fisherman, and he had caught in the in the, one of the rivers. He used to go down to the Ohio River, which was a couple hundred miles south, and he had caught in either the Ohio or the Kankakee. I think it was the Kankakee River. It's a big river there. He caught a tremendous. Oh, he was he was I'd say. Three feet, three and a half feet, and uh, he must have been about two feet around. A tremendous, he was in the vicinity of 55 to 60 pounds. A tremendous catfish. You ever seen those big cats? A really big cat. Well, he took this catfish and he caught it, and he caught it in the river. Well, instead of just taking the catfish and bringing it home and making them into fillets or something, 
and by the way, catfish is a great eating fish. Well, what he did was bring the catfish home in a tank. He had some kind of a big tank, and he brought it home, and he put it in his fish pond. And this big catfish is laying in the fish pond. Tremendous catfish. And he would come out every day and feed him rotten hamburger. Rotten hamburger. That that what he would do, he'd he'd let uh, he'd take you know, he'd get a pound of hamburger and he'd leave it out on the porch for a couple of days till it got kinda high, and then he would just take a piece of this, you know, a little scoop of this hamburger and he'd drop it into his fish pond and this old catfish would just come drifting over. He didn't strike or anything, right? He'd just come drifting over and he'd just, up would go to down would go the uh down would go the stuff and that's it. What did he weigh? Fifty five pounds. Huh? I don't know what you're saying here. It was, uh, I can't tell. Looks like you're saying what was his weight or something. But uh, he, he would, why did he do it? Well, I don't know why he did it. Uh, he just did it. You know, why do guys climb Mount Everest? And we're getting the question here. And so we had this tremendous thing. Uh, why rotten? Oh, well, that's, that's simple because uh, generally fish, uh, especially uh, bottom feeders, scavengers, generally live off things which have been thrown into the water. In other words, they, they're, they're generally used to eating things which are rotten. And also, it's not rotten. I shouldn't have said that. It's high. It's, uh, it's gamey. Uh, yes, that's, that's, uh, that's the word I mean, which means, of course, it, it, has, it has an aroma to a fish. Remember this. People tend to think of animals as like us. Uh, they tend to think that if, if a dog, you, you see this in dog food ads all the time, uh, trying to pretend that dogs like booyah bays, you know. Uh, yes, they're just like people food. Well, that's the last kind of food that a average dog really wants to eat. He's uh, he, he's not interested in uh, in eating uh, you know uh, vichy squaws. He's not interested in in knocking down little uh, fillet of sole amandine. Uh, and and uh, a dog, given his druthers, would always eat meat uh, that is a little gamey. They they really like this. This this they enjoy vastly. And anyway, and a lot of people who have nice little elegant dogs are continually dismayed when they take this elegant little dog out. See, and the dog only eats uh, fine French cuisine, which is imported from Rumpelmeyer's for a you know, little Fifi. They constantly get disturbed when all of a sudden, when Fifi's out walking, Fifi gets off the leash and runs into the privet hedge and starts rolling around on dead fish. Have you ever seen them do that? Well, that's, uh, this is their thing, you know. They're dogs. Well, so I'm not going to sit here and argue the aesthetics of why catfish eat rotten meat. They do. Suffice it to say, they do. And they like it. And I'm not, who, you know, that's their thing. I'm not going to put them down. So uh, this, uh, this catfish was out there all year. I mean, he, he, he wasn't just there for a couple of days. This catfish, we'd go and look at the catfish. We'd go over there and, and, and look at Mr. Sanford's catfish. And his catfish would, would come. You know, he got to the point where he was really domestic. And, and you'd walk to the... Because he always figured if somebody stood by the edge of the pool, they were going to pop with some more of the rotten stuff, see? So we'd walk up to the edge of the pool, and he'd just sort of swim right over to us. Great big son of a gun with tremendous uh, whiskers hanging down. Enormous. Well, uh, this, this catfish, I don't, I don't I'd like to tell you what happened to him in the end. I don't know. I don't know what happened. But he had that catfish for a long time out there. Till probably one day his wife got tired of the catfish eating the goldfish, and uh, which is what they do too, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, they like to snack, and so uh, 
we, uh, we, we'd, we'd catch these bats. Now, what do you do with a bat? Well, well uh, one thing you do with a bat, you get an aquarium, in case you're curious. You know, big square aquarium, and you can put two or three bats in the aquarium, and you put branches in them. Like a, you stick a little tree in there, and the bat will hang upside down in your little aquarium. And over the top of the aquarium, of course, you have to put uh, you have to put screening because you you get out, friend. So uh, you put screening over there, and the bat uh, hangs upside down, and he comes out at night. You know, all day long he'll hang upside down in the in this uh, this little aquarium. And then at night, of course, then he starts to to prowl. He's in business then. And he flies around in this thing. And if he, he flies round and round in his little aquarium. So how you how you feed him, we used to feed him. Now you're curious why I know all this. Well this was a <laughs> this was a Boy Scout project one time in Troop Forty One. We we raised a family of bats. And uh yes, we raised them. They have babies and everything. So how you feed bats is uh you you, you catch flies and stuff. You can buy, if you want to, you can buy live flies, believe it or not, for feeding various things like that in exotic pet stores. You know, you can buy live mosquitoes and stuff. So uh, we would catch flies, though. So we would we would catch maybe you know, 10 or 15 kids in the Boy Scout Trooper out catching flies all day long. We got a whole jar full of flies. Well, then what you do, it's obvious. You just take the flies uh, during the day, and then remember, there's a screen over the top, and you just dump all the flies out into the aquarium and you put the top back over. Well, the, 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 the bats won't bother them during the day. Uh, the bats are just hanging there. They're asleep. They're, they're you know, they're, you've seen bats asleep. Well, then at night, you hear more action, man, than you ever thought you'd believe. See, they're going like mad in there. But don't turn a flashlight on them. Then you turn a flashlight on them, then they, then they get inhibited. But, but the, at night, you hear this fluttering around in there and a lot of squeaking and yelling and the bats are really going to town. Well, the next morning, there they are. They're all hanging from their little branches, completely asleep, and there isn't a single fly. Every last fly is gone. And that's, that's how you raise bats. Well, well so you, you see the scene. I mean, this, this vacant lot that we had. Do you have any of that uh, scary music, Jerry? I think it's on tape there. You, I think we better use this. Because uh, you can see the, the, uh, the ramifications. I, I've always felt that, that every kid... Every kid uh, should grow up living next to a swamp. I think it would be a great educational boon to most kids. I mean, a real swamp or a huge vacant lot with a underground peat fire in it where the bats come flying out of the darkness on a quiet summer evening and you see shifting figures. I think this, 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 this would teach a kid more about life than anything he could conceive of do. As a matter of fact, I suspect one day... Uh, F.A.O. Schwartz is going to have a portable swamp for elegant rich kids so they can experience a little true-to-life life in Darien. Daddy buys them a nice antiseptic swamp. Has a few mud hens in it. You know, some toads and some newts. You ever gone out hunting for newts? You don't know what a, you don't know what a newt is? Oh, for crying out loud. Why, one of the funniest stories that that Robert Benchley ever wrote was called The Love Life of the Newt. Newt. Oh, no, no, no. You're talking about an old... That's an old shortstop. No, no, his name was Luke, not Newt Appling. Luke. That's another guy. But uh, we used to raise newts and all that stuff. And so that that slow, drifting haze down here at the end of the street, once in a while you'd look at it, the right line... 
Yeah, of course, uh, uh, the, 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 the fear that goes through kids goes in waves. It doesn't go in a straight line. Like, uh, you know, you, you know the, you know the, uh, the, uh, the haunted house fear. There's always, you've, you've uh, lived in a neighborhood that was a haunted house. You ever have anything like that around when you were a kid? Okay. Well, kids will go for months and not think about it. And then all of a sudden, the haunted house fear will grip them. And, uh, yeah, it'll grip them. And, and all the kids are suddenly talking about the haunted house, and they're running around looking at it and peeking at it and rumors. And then, again, that'll disappear, and for months it'll go. I think this is just the way human beings are, that we, are, we get in the grip of fears, and then we forget them. Gee, I haven't heard anybody mention Strontium 90 for a long time. Whatever happened to that gang? Don't you remember Strontium 90, or is it Strontium? Strontium? Well, that's another way of pronouncing it. But uh, uh, I haven't heard of that. Don't, don't they make that anymore? Gee, that was nice. Yeah, everybody was all excited about that for a while. Yeah, you remember the cranberry scare? Do you remember when everybody got uh, hung on a cranberry thing? That was kind of good. Don't you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, when was it? I don't care. It doesn't matter. When was it? I don't know. It's just part of that great boneyard of past crises. doesn't make any difference when it was. Great crises that we've all lived through. The cranberry scare. Well, the swamp scare, the underground fire scare would grip us. You know, we'd, for about two weeks, we'd, uh, we'd walk in great circles around this place. Wherever we came home from the store, we'd have to go past the underground fire. And as we did, you know, you'd just see the stuff drifting. And when we were in the grip, man, we never got near it. There'd be rumors, you know, that the Bruner put his foot over there the other day, and his foot almost got swallowed up, so it made a sucking sound. Grabbed that. Oh, man. Well, then one day, one day, I am coming home from the store, and there's a strange, curious apparatus right in the middle of the vacant lot. And it was a tower-like. It stuck up in the air. Stuck up there maybe 65, 70 feet. And on the top of the tower, there was a platform with a little railing around it. And I came home, and I reported that. Yeah, you know, they built a thing down there in the vacant lot. And everybody says, well, gee, maybe they're putting in a new gas station or something down there. Nobody knew what it was for at least three days. And then on the fourth magical day, standing there amid the drifting smoke and the swirling bats, a great sign had been unfolded, a sign made out of this bunting-type cloth. that drifted down from the top of this thing. It was hanging there. And you know what it said? Big Big Joe. Joe. World's champion flagpole setter. Well, now, when you have a flagpole setter working in your neighborhood, friends, you begin to have a sense of the ridiculous and the sublime. And on that Saturday, about five million people assembled in the edge of the lot there, all along the road, with cars and police. And Big Joe began his run at the world flagpole sitting record. Everybody cheered. Yeah, they had bands out there. There was a radio station there. They had guys with microphones. 
up there talking to him, and there he sat up there, and he had, I remember he had these red coveralls, these spectacular red coveralls, so you could see him up there, see? I mean, after all, you know, he's a, in showbiz, so he had this red coverall, and he was wearing some kind of a blue baseball hat with white stars on it. I remember that very vividly. And uh, Big Joe uh, sat up at the top of this thing, and he gave interviews, and he was maintaining that he was going to break the world's flagpole sitting record. Now, I don't know what the world's record is, but I'll tell you, it's a hell of a long time. Because the rain came down that night, and Big Joe sat up there, as far as I know. And the kids were all excited. You know, they run down, and you see the smoke raising up from behind him there where the underground fire was burning. And Joe was sitting up there quietly. And he had a radio. You could hear his radio playing. <laughs> Quiet nights. Yeah, I had a radio up there. You hear the music playing up there. Big Joe's going at the record. Well, for the, about the first month or so, Everybody would go there. It was a big deal. And they were charging. They'd walk around. His, his partner, whatever he was, would walk around in a crowd and take uh, contributions in the hat to keep Big Joe up there. After all, he's upholding the, the, uh, uh, the honor of Indiana. He represents Indiana in the uh, flagpole-sitting world. And they, they would people throw quarters and dimes in there, and Big Joe said, Well, then they gradually began to not show up. And I remember one day playing baseball out in the street there with me and Bruner and Schwartz and Flick. And down at the end of the street is the flagpole and Big Joe is sitting up there and there ain't nobody around. And we had gotten so used to the flagpole sitter down there that nobody paid any attention anymore. Well, this is bad for a professional flagpole sitter. And it was at that moment that an announcement was made that re brought back, rekindled fantastic interest in Big Joe. Are you curious what it was? Well, it was announced in the paper, a full-page ad, that Big Joe, the flagpole sitter, was going to perpetrate the first flagpole-sitting wedding in history. You didn't think I'd get back to that, did you? Well, it's true. And, and, and everybody was invited, and they were going to have cake. It says, free cake, free favors to everybody. Kids welcome, everybody. Band, music. And it was going to be performed by the Reverend C.L.G. Snodgrass, from the 4th Baptist Church, C.L.G. Snodgrass. Yes, the 4th Baptist Church. And and, uh, and on the Saturday, he got married on a Saturday. And, oh, there must have been 10,000 people out there. And it made all the newsreels. You know, it was so exciting to go to the movies after that. And you know how they... You remember when they used to have the newsreels that would come on? da 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 The newsreel music would come on. dum 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 da dum dum And on would come this voice. And raging, and raging floodwaters water raged over the Ohio River, river leaving, leaving thousands, thousands homeless. homeless. The Red Cross declared an immediate emergency. And you'd see the waters flowing. Well, that's what they used to do in the newsreel. You remember newsreels, Marty. And then the... They're, oh, sure, everybody does. And uh, at the end of practically every newsreel for one month, it says, and now on the lighter side, and the music would come... Says in Hammond, Indiana, a rather unique wedding took place. And it be a lot of shots of Joe standing up there wearing his red, his red coveralls with his his blue baseball hat, wearing the stars all over, and he's waving at the cameras. See, and you saw the Reverend C. L. G. Snodgrass from the Fourth Baptist Church. Man, it was the biggest thing that ever happened to the Fourth Baptist Church. He got in the movies. That's you know he's in the same pictures with Fred Astaire and all that. So uh, he's up there on the on the platform, and his bride was spectacularly garbed. Yes, that's the only way you could describe her. She was garbed. There are certain people that are clothed, but she was garbed. 
She had a gold wedding gown. And, uh, boy, I'll tell you, people were flipping. She had a gold wedding gown, and she had a bouquet made out of flowers. And, I, and this has re it remained with me forever because I'd never seen anything like this. She had a bouquet of flowers that were, they were real flowers, that were sprayed with gilt paint. Now, isn't that a fine touch? And she had a big gold crown, and Joe and his red, uh, his red coveralls up there. And she must have been six feet seven. She was a tremendous tall, skinny girl. And the two of them got married in front of everybody, and there was a there was a, a portable organ they brought out, and the organ is playing "I Love You Truly," and the Flagpole Sitters Union sent out the Flagpole Sitters Union Choir, uh, who all sang "I Love You Truly," and Joe, one of the great all-time Flagpole Sitters, got got hitched that day. Well, it was in every paper all over the country. I mean. I mean, we were so excited because there it was. You could see it on the front page of the Chicago Tribune. And uh, it was a big picture. And you could see a whole crowd. And people were always picking out guys they knew, you know, circle. Everybody had a picture of Joe's wedding in his wallet for years, you know, with their pictures circled, the little thing. I know that's me. And people would say, what do you mean? It's this little dot. It's no, I know. I was standing right next to Pass Winsky's pump. You're going to ask him. That's me right next to the S.O. pump right there in the background. That's me. And, of course, uh, you'd send the pictures of this to your relatives all over the country. You know, I'm in the news. It says, uh, circle, that's where I am. Well, Joe got married in front of the entire congregation. There were, the whole town was out there. Of course, there were a lot of uh, snide remarks made. Uh, many, uh, many people didn't uh, take it as seriously as Joe would like them to do. And uh, so that night, they all stood around and watched. Well, after all, he's a flagpole setter. He's going for the world champion. Let's face it, this is Joe's wedding night, you know. Crowd wanted to be out there. I know my old man was out there with his brownie with the flash attachments and all that. See, he wasn't going to miss anything. And uh, Joe's up there on, <laughs> on the platform. <laughs> oh, man, I have to laugh thinking of it. You know, Joe's up there on the platform, see, and, and, and everybody, millions of kids are out there now, see, and it's beginning to, it's beginning to fall down. It's... You know how things like that all start out sort of grandiose. Well, it was beginning to become a buffoon's picnic. And uh, guys were all, you know, guys showed up from the pool room and they're hollering stuff up there. And uh, Joe, see, there was no place. Uh, he didn't have a house up there. It was just a little platform with a little railing around it. And he had a camp chair. So here's, here's Joe sitting up there, see, and his camp chair would fold down. And at night, I guess he'd sleep up there or something. So uh, they, they, uh, they had a pulley. And they would give him food, like, you know, he would, he, they, they, they'd send up a, a, a bucket of champagne. See, he's married, so up goes the bucket of champagne. And, and he is, yeah, I remember this so, so vividly. And they, they had, he didn't come down during the wedding. Remember that? Oh, it's important. He was going for the world record. You don't come down from your flagpole in the middle of just to get married, you know, when you're going for the world record. So uh, uh, the, the Reverend C.L.G. Abernathy went all the way to the top, Snodgrass, excuse me, CLG Snodgrass, climbed up to the top, and he was wearing a long black coat, like like the Baptists do, see, and he gets up to the top there, and he, he declares a man and wife. Well, then he couldn't get down. You know, a lot of people get a little embarrassed, and they, you know, they, they get nervous about heights. So two or three firemen got up there, and they're pulling him down, and they got the, they got the reverend, you know, and they, they're lowering him down. They finally get him down there, and everybody's cheering, and they, they actually passed out pieces of cake. Yeah, they had the, you know, there's some some local bakery uh, had a great big promo and and uh, you know cake courtesy of the Angel Food Cake Company and uh, they were handing out this cake. Well, everybody is standing around then at night. It's now about ten o'clock at night, 
And Joe, every night, uh, because, you know, he was in showbiz, every night, Joe had these lights on his place. Uh, you, you see these purple and green lights. Oh, it was beautiful. They had purple and green lights lit from underneath. And uh, every day they would change the sign. It would say how many days he's up there, see? Like uh, 37 consecutive days, 19 and a half hours, going for the world's record. And every day they would change it. So here's Joe sitting up there that night. And people were all standing around, a great crowd of people standing around. Well, Joe, Joe's looking down. People are waving up at him. And, and they're saying, hey, Joe, hey, Joe, why are we? And Joe, he'd wave down. And uh, he was, you know, he was kind of a star. He didn't just talk to ordinary people. He'd just wave and he'd doff his cap. And once in a while, somebody would uh, go over to the, he had, a, he had a guy that worked with him. He's kind of like his assistant. And the uh, people would go over there and give him something to autograph, like uh, my old man, you know, would set up a straw hat for Big Joe to autograph. Yeah, he'd autograph it. And by the way, charge you one dollar per autograph. So, uh, but it was, a, it was a worthwhile thing. It's not that I, I wish I had a, a straw hat autographed by the world's champion flagpole sitter today. Guess what that would go for in one of these little Third Avenue camp shops? It would be fantastic, you know, with a picture of the guy. So uh, Joe's standing up there. Everybody's around there cheering. And it started to rain on Joe's wedding night. Well, that's not so bad if you're spending your wedding night, I guess, at the Waldorf Astoria. But when you're spending it on top of a flagpole with 17,000 yachts watching you, you know, 17,000 uh, dildocks standing around yelling, it's uh, it just everything is contrived. Well, his wife, his new wife, climbed down. Everybody's cheered. See, she climbed down from this thing, and they took her away in this car. They had a big, elegant Cadillac. It was her wedding night, after all. And it had big signs on the back, just married. <laughs> and they took her away. <laughs> and Joe's, Joe's bride, as far as I know, never showed up again. She never, she never was up there. Joe just sat up there, and all the guys making lewd remarks that whole night. And towards the middle of the week, after, after we'd gotten a lot of uh, mileage on this, you know, there were pictures in all the newspapers and all that, again, Joe's popularity began to wane. And nobody showed up for about maybe a month, or a good two or three weeks anyway. And one day, just out of the blue, with no explanation, no comment, nobody said a word, Joe disappeared. And it was funny, nobody even noticed that he was gone for a couple of days. He just wasn't up there anymore. And one day somebody says, hey, what happened to Big Joe? Somebody says, oh, gee, yeah. Well, he's still up there, isn't he? He says, no, he's gone. I, I haven't seen him for a couple of days. Well, I'll be damned. So that's what happens to old, old flagpole sitters. They just wander off into the middle distance and are never heard from again. Like yo-yo champs, Philippine yo-yo champs. What happens to old lead rock singers? Same thing. They have their moment in the sun. Then they wander off into the middle distance to join that great pantheon of popular folk slob art heroes. Now, I'm curious, you know, somewhere off in the, you know, far vast reachnesses of the Middle West, that great inverted bowl of night, there's this little squat fireplug-shaped guy who has a book, book full of clipping. Big Joe, the ex-great flagpole sitter. Do they tell their kids about how they got married that day in the rain? I don't know. These are the questions one cannot answer. 
These are plays that Arthur Copert and Tennessee Williams don't write. These are just things that are. Now listen, you, don't forget, tomorrow night at 8, tomorrow night at 8 on Channel 13. And by the way, tomorrow night's show is a wild one. My TV show, tomorrow night, Channel 13 at 8 o'clock. Or wherever you are in your neighborhood, your educational station. And this is truly educational. Be sure to keep the kids away from it, though. WOR, New York. And now the news. This is Bruce. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.